We're going to continue our study through the gospel according to Mark, verse after verse. Open your Bibles or access your device to Mark chapter 4, verse 26. And today we're going to talk about the mystery of the mighty mustard seed. Uh, Next Sunday we're going to talk about how to face the storms of life. So how many of you grew up on a farm? Anybody here? A few did in the first service, yeah. How many of you had parents or grandparents that grew up on a farm? Let's see your hand. Yeah, there's a lot more of you. We used to be a much more agrarian culture than we are today. Uh, and you notice the audience of Jesus. I mean, they all knew what it was about to plant crops, to have good soil, to plant seeds and harvest seeds. So that's why he told so many stories and used so many parables about planting seeds. And that's what he's going to talk about in this message as well. You know, when I was growing up a number of years ago uh, in Alabama, and my daughter Jenny was only in about the third grade, one afternoon we were eating a watermelon, and I was pulling those black seeds out of the watermelon, and I said, Jenny, it's pretty amazing to think this big watermelon came from a small seed like this. And I saw her eyes light up. I knew exactly what she wanted to do. She wanted to plant some watermelon seeds. So that's what we did. We didn't really have a garden, but we were in a subdivision, and the lot next to us had not yet been built on. It had been cleared off, so it was dirt, but it wasn't very fertile dirt. So we went out there, and we planted about 20 or 30 uh, watermelon seeds, and her job every day was to water the watermelon patch, and she did a pretty good job. One day, she came in very excited and said, Wait, hey, we have a watermelon growing, and I went out there, and it was about the size of a lemon. She kept watering it, watering it, and that one watermelon got to be about the size of a softball. But you could just tell it wasn't going to make it. So she kind of got impatient, and she stopped really watering it, and I think she gave up on it. Well, one afternoon driving home, I stopped at a curb market and bought a 40-pound watermelon. <laughs> and I took it out of there, and I put it in the watermelon patch and wrapped the vine around the stem of that watermelon. And I went in, and I said, Jenny, have you checked the watermelon patch lately? She said, no. I said, well, go check it out. She came back in with her eyes this big. Daddy, daddy, you won't believe we have a huge watermelon out there. And I said, yeah, I put it there. So So Jesus isn't talking about watermelon seeds. He's going to talk about a mustard seed. Now, the kind of mustard plant he's talking about uh, is not indigenous to Texas, but it is all over Israel. I'll show you some pictures of it. And there's some great lessons that we're going to learn from planting seeds. So Mark 4, verse 26, you're welcome to stand with me as we read this portion of God's Word, if you're willing and able. The kingdom of God is like this, he said. A man scatters seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day. The seed sprouts and grows, although he doesn't know how. The soil produces a crop by itself, first the blade, then the head, And then the full grain on the head. Obviously, he's talking about wheat here. As soon as the crop is ready, he sends for the sickle because the harvest has come. And he said, what can we compare the kingdom of God or what parable can we use to describe it? It's like a mustard seed that when sown upon the soil is the smallest of all the seeds of the ground. And when it is sown, it comes up and grows taller than all the garden plants And produces large branches so that the birds of the sky can nest in its shade. Let's pray together. Father, I pray that today your Holy Spirit will find the hearts of your listeners to be fertile soil in which the Word of God will be planted and the result will be fruit produced in their life. 
I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Thanks, be seated. You know, seeds are amazing things. Jesus had something else to say about a mustard seed. Elsewhere, he said, if you have the faith the size of a mustard seed, which is not very much, you can say to this mountain, get up and jump into the ocean. Now, what's the difference between a seed and a mountain? Very simple. A seed contains life. A mountain is just dead rock. So Jesus liked to talk about a mustard seed. You know, seeds are amazing. They have, they have potential for life in them. Somebody said that there's a thousand apples in one apple seed. Well, really, there's a thousand apple orchards in one apple seed. That's the power of multiplication of seeds. Now, you know, seeds are, are amazing. You know, archaeologists have undug, uh, discovered 3,000-year-old seeds in some of the tombs of the Egyptian pharaohs they planted those seeds and they grew and produced crops. That's how amazing seeds are. So there's a miracle with every seed. And so that's why Jesus chose to kind of compare the kingdom of God to something as miraculous as the mighty, minute mustard seed. So let's learn three ways in which the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. You ready? Number one, like a mustard seed, God's kingdom starts small. God's kingdom starts small. Now, the mustard seed is a tiny, tiny seed. In fact, it takes 200 of them to cover a penny. I think I have a picture here of somebody holding some mustard seeds in their hands. Those look too large to do it. It takes about 700 mustard seeds to make one ounce. But the plant that grows, as I said, you may be thinking about mustard on your uh, hot dog or or even mustard greens that we sometimes plant with turnip greens. But here's a picture I took in Israel of the prolific mustard plant. It's this big yellow flower that's going to come up right now. And there you go. They just, you just see it everywhere over there. And those branches grow. The plants sometimes grow to be 10 to 12 feet tall. So I want you to think about what Jesus is saying here. As this tiny mustard seed begins small... So that does the kingdom of God started very small. How small did it start? It really started with a baby in Bethlehem. God chose to enter the world through a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes, laid in a manger in Bethlehem. I heard about a tour group in Europe one time, and they were asking the tour guide, were there any famous people born in this town? He said, no, only babies were born in this town. That's how God starts every life, as, as, as a baby. And so the, the kingdom of God really didn't have a great auspicious start. I mean, it started small and was pretty much restricted just today, what we call the land of Israel, which is a, about the size of the state of Vermont. So it's amazing how small it started. There was a great preacher of the 19th century, Dr. R.C. Trench, an Irish preacher. And here's how he comments about how inauspicious the kingdom started. The Son of Man was born in obscurity and grew up in a despised province. He did not appear in public until his 30th year. Then he taught for only three years in neighboring villages and occasionally in Jerusalem. He had only a few followers, chiefly among the poor and unlearned. Then falling into the hands of his enemies, he died a shameful death on a cross. Thus was the commencement of the kingdom of God. It started small. But you know, throughout the Bible, God teaches that you should never despise small beginnings. In fact, there's a verse about that we're going to look at in a moment. 
You remember the history of Israel? The height of the kingdom was during King Solomon. He was the richest man in the world at the time. And he built this beautiful temple, ornate, considered one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It was so beautiful. But the people, they rebelled against God. They forsook his commandments. They worshiped idols. So God allowed a godless nation, Babylon, to come in and capture Jerusalem. And they utterly destroyed the temple and took them off into exile. Well, finally, God allowed them to return to Jerusalem. That's what we read about in Ezra and Nehemiah. And they were going to build a second temple. But you know what? They had hardly any money, hardly any materials. And so this second temple was going to be plain compared to the first temple. And there was a lot of opposition to building it. If we can't build it as nice as Solomon's, why are we even building it? But the prophet Zechariah said something very wise when he said this in Zechariah 4.10. Who despises the day of small things? Men will rejoice when they see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. In other words, when he starts the process of rebuilding the temple, as plain as it may be compared to Solomon's, it will be a time to rejoice. And you know, every great business started small. Every great church started small. Every building project that you've ever had here at Marberly started with a groundbreaking or with just a pouring of the foundation. It always starts small. But the metaphor here is how you can take a small seed of faith and plant it in someone and what develops is tremendous impact. True story. In the early 1800s on a snowy night in England, a 15-year-old teenager was going to his church, but there was a terrible blizzard. He couldn't even make it to his church, so he stumbled into some little Methodist church that only had about 15 or 20 people in attendance. It was such a bad blizzard that the preacher didn't even show up that night. So one of the men in the church took the Bible, opened it to Isaiah, and read this where God says, Look to me and be saved all the ends of the earth. And he dismissed the service and he thought, Why did we even have church tonight? But that night, a small seed of faith was planted in the heart of that 15-year-old teenager who was Charles Spurgeon, who became the most famous British Baptist pastor, preached to crowds of over 5,000 every Sunday in London. That's where that tiny seed of faith was first planted. All right, here's the second thing we learn about the kingdom, like a mustard seed, is God's kingdom grows steadily. It grows steadily, and that's what we learned about the mustard plant. Tiny seed, but it grows into a very tall plant, 10 or 12 feet tall. And it's the same thing with God's kingdom. It started very small like a mustard seed, but it grew steadily. And actually, at the beginning, it grew rapidly. Now, think about this. Jesus called 12 disciples to surround him. And one of them was a dropout, Judas. And then on the day of Pentecost, there was only 120 people at the birth of the church. Look at several of these verses from Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1. In those days, Peter stood up among the believers a group numbering of about 120. And then over into Acts chapter 2. So those who accepted his message were baptized, and that day about 3,000 people were added to them. And then it says at the end of chapter 2, every day the Lord added to their number people who were being saved. And then later on we read in chapter 4, but many of those who heard the message believed, and the number of men 
came to about 5,000. Wow. You talk about starting small, 11 men, 120 believers, 3,000 added in one day. Every day God adding to the church until just a couple of chapters later, there's 5,000 men, not counting women and children. So within a matter of weeks or months, the church went from a tiny little mustard seed to over probably 10,000 people in Jerusalem. And then persecution scattered the church and it permeated into the whole Roman Empire. Until today, brothers and sisters, 2,000 years after Pentecost, and next Sunday is Pentecost, by the way, there are over 2 billion people on the planet who claim to be followers of Jesus Christ. Over 2 billion, and it's approaching 3 billion. The world's population as of last Friday was 7.7 billion. You know, and Bill Bright, who was the founder of Campus Crusade for Christ, before he died, he had a vision that he called the Billion Soul Vision or the Billion Soul Network. He wanted to churches and Christians to come together, whatever their denominational background, and form a network to, to reach the next billion people for Christ. And I know Green Acres, the church I served, we were part of that network. There were 400,000 global churches that were part of that network. The goal that started in 2001 was to plant 5 million new churches by 2025. And you know what? We're on track for that for the next billion people. Because although here in the United States and actually in North America, it doesn't seem like God is doing much. Brothers and sisters around the world, God is doing mighty things. The church that started as a tiny mustard seed, I mean, it is growing and spreading like wildfire. Take China, for instance. In 1949, there were about 400,000 Christians in China. And today, there's about 163 million Christians in China. Take Africa as a continent. In, in 1922, 100 years ago, less than 10% of the population in, in Africa were Christians. And today, there are 700 million Christians in Africa. The biggest churches in the world are not in North America. They are in Korea. They're in Africa. And they're in Central America, believe it or not. God's doing great things. Before COVID, I was in Honduras leading some pastor training and I preached in one church in Honduras that has 30,000 people in attendance every Sunday. They, they meet in what is like a huge airplane hangar, and they have three services of 10,000 each. And people are coming to faith in Christ all the time. So what I'm saying is the kingdom of God started small like a mustard seed, and it is growing rapidly and steadily. Of course, that's what John saw in his vision in heaven this is what we've been studying on Wednesday nights, Revelation 7. 7, 9 says, After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb. Now, I've been talking about God's kingdom and basically globally the church. But you know what? God's kingdom is a lot more personal than the global church. God's kingdom is... Is, in within, is within you. Jesus said in Matthew 6, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added unto you. So the kingdom of God is not hard to understand because the, the Bible gives us the definition of the kingdom of God. Would you like to know what the kingdom of God is? I'm so glad you asked because the answer is found right in Romans 
14, 17. For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, meaning abstaining or doing this religious rituals or religious rules, but righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. That's what the kingdom is. You know, all you need to have a kingdom is a king. You don't need crowns or thrones or armies or anything like that. You just need a king. And I want to say if Jesus is the king of your life, if you have enthroned him in your life as Lord, as king, that's the kingdom. And it manifests itself in at least three ways. Righteousness, not your righteousness, but you stand in the righteousness of Jesus. Peace, peace with God, an inner peace that passes all human understanding. An inexpressible joy full of glory. Now, you know what? God's kingdom started in me and you with a seed being planted. I mean, the seed was planted in me when I was nine years old. I want to ask you right now, is that kingdom within you growing? Is it growing? Is there more an understanding of righteousness? Is there a growing sense of peace, inner peace? Is there a growing expression of joy in your life? Because what we learn is the kingdom starts small like a mustard seed, but it grows steadily. And then here's the third comparison of the kingdom to a mustard seed. God's kingdom offers shelter. Yeah, that's right. He said, you know what about this plant that's so unusual? It grows so tall and the branches are so thick that the birds of the air can come and perch there and even build their nest there. In fact, I have a picture here I took in Israel on one of the trips. And you can see this bird there. That is a mustard plant. And while you're there, you can see birds flitting out and flitting in. They put nests there. So think about the idea of how in God's kingdom, like these birds find shelter in the mustard plant, we find shelter and protection in God's kingdom. I love what the Bible says there in Psalm 91.1. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will rest in the shadow of the Almighty. So you say, Pastor, what are you talking about when you're talking about shelter? Well, let me give you three areas in which God's kingdom provides shelter for us individually. Number one, in God's kingdom, you find rest from the weariness of life, the weariness of life. Now, do you ever get tired, physically tired, emotionally tired? You know, I was going over this part of my message with my wife who will be here in the third service. And she said, man, you better preach to yourself on this point. I mean, uh, since in the last eight days, this is my 12th time to, to preach, 12th time. I mean, I preached here last Sunday, last Saturday I did a, a Davidson Foundation. I was at ETBU this week for Hilltop University. I was here for Webs on Wednesday night. I already preached once today. And Thursday night, I, I spoke at a high school graduation in Tyler. So if my voice sounds a little hoarse, it ought to. And so she said, buddy, you better preach to yourself on this point. Okay. When one finger is pointing at you, three are pointing at me, all right? You know, I look back during the time of COVID, and it was a weird time, but you know what? It was a time for my wife and I, we actually spent a lot more time together just sitting on our back screen porch, watching the birds, talking to each other, just relaxing. But you know what? Now, it seems like I'm busier than ever, and some of you are too. So what we need to do is understand that God offers us Rest for our souls. One of the greatest invitations in the Bible is found in Matthew eleven twenty eight. 28. Jesus said, come to me, 
all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest, Shabbat. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Now, the idea of a yoke, if you're thinking about a heavy wooden yoke you put on oxen to plow or something, no. I want you to think of a double yoke, and it's easy and light. And the good news is Jesus is in the other side of that yoke. It's a double yoke. He's in one side, and when we get yoked up with Jesus... He provides the strength that we need. He provides the direction that we need. And where he says to go, we will go. I mean, can you imagine being a bird? I mean, flying and just having to trust God for a place to land, trust God for something to eat. But, you know, Jesus used that example in the Sermon on the Mount. He said, don't worry. Consider the birds of the air. They don't toil. They don't work, and your heavenly Father cares for them. You know, birds trust God, and we should trust God like birds do. In fact, years ago, I I heard a little poem of an imaginary conversation between a robin and a sparrow. The poem goes this way. Said the robin to the sparrow, I'd really like to know why these anxious human creatures rush about and worry so. Said the sparrow to the robin, I think that it must be that they have no heavenly father such as cares for you and me. Well, folks, we do have a heavenly father who cares for us and says, come to me and I'll give you rest for your souls. Here's a second area of shelter. We receive shelter from God's wrath against sin. God is a holy God. And one day his wrath against sin will be expressed. Now, In the Old Testament, they weren't real certain that they could be guaranteed that they would escape God's wrath. In fact, in Zephaniah 2.3, look at these words. The prophet says, seek the Lord, seek righteousness, seek humility. And then this is the word I want you to pay attention to. Perhaps, perhaps you will be sheltered on the day of the Lord's anger. You know what? Because we're New Testament believers, we can change that word perhaps to the word certainty assurance. You know that you will escape God's wrath. Why? Because Romans 8, 1 says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You know, there's one place in the history of the world where God's judgment against sin was poured out, and that was at the cross of Jesus Christ. And if we stand in Jesus Christ and Christ in us, we will not experience personally God's wrath against sin. Jesus absorbed our punishment. You know, Jesus used a very interesting analogy of himself in Matthew chapter 23, verse 37. He said, O Jerusalem, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. Isn't that interesting that Jesus chose this picture of a mother hen guarding her chicks. Now, I'm an expert on chicken because I'm a Baptist preacher. I've eaten a bunch of them. Oh, seriously, hens are protective of their young. In fact, there's a farmer in Canada that talked about once he had a fire in his chicken coop, and he put the fire out before there was too much damage, but as he was going, un- going through the ashes, he found a mother hen 
who had perished in the fire. And her wings were outstretched, and when he picked up the hen, four little chicks ran out. She could have fled the fire, because chickens can fly a little short distance, but she chose to protect her young. That's the very picture that Jesus used for us. He says, I want to protect you from the wrath of God. So if you stand at the cross and in the finished work of Christ at the cross, you'll be shielded from God's wrath against sin. One more area of shelter, eternal protection and peace in the place called heaven. You know, God has a wonderful plan for your life. You are created by God with a purpose in his mind. And, and once you come to Christ, he has a plan and a purpose for your life. And really, it's an eternal plan and purpose because, you know, one day when we die or Jesus comes back, we'll spend eternity in heaven where there will be peace and security. Once again, Revelation 5, 17, this is what John saw. They, that means us, are before the throne of God, serve him day and night in the temple, and he who sits on the throne will spread his, his tender care over them. For the lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. You know, the great thing about heaven is not so much what's going to be there but what's not going to be there. There's going to be no sorrow, no sickness, no suffering, no sin, no, no curse. But the beautiful thing is that God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. You know, from the time we're born until the time we die, we live under a veil of tears in this life. Some of you cried this week, and some of you will cry this next week. But you can be assured that in heaven, God will wipe away every tear from our eyes. 1991, Eric Clapton wrote a Grammy-winning song, Tears in Heaven. It was, it was over his broken heart after his five-year-old son fell out of a high-rise apartment building they lived in in New York City. And this is what he said in this song. Would you know my name if I saw you in heaven? Would you feel the same if I saw you in heaven? I must be strong and carry on. Because I know I don't belong here in heaven. You know, we're so sorry for his pain and agony, and no parent should have to go through that. But I have to disagree with him. God's will for your life is for you to spend eternity in heaven. And God wants you to stay there. You know, a few years ago, there was a book that was written, Heaven is for Real. Anybody read that book, Heaven is for Real? Heaven is for Real? Yeah, this, this book right here. It's called The Word of God. It is for real. And you know, if you sometimes don't feel at home in this world, it's because you are not created for this world. You're created for another world, and you're homesick, and we're homesick for heaven. I finished with this one of my favorite quotes from C.S. Lewis. He said, if I find in myself desires which nothing in this world can satisfy, the only logical explanation is I, I was made for another world. And yes, you were. And yes, we are. Would you bow your heads with me right now in prayer? A lot of you are already in the kingdom. You know the Lord. But if you don't know the Lord and you're here in this room or you're watching on live stream, I'd love to lead you in a simple, childlike prayer of faith in which you can give your heart to Jesus. Just repeat this prayer after me. But you mean it sincerely. Dear God, 
I admit that I'm a sinner. And I'm sorry for my sin. Thank you, God, for sending Jesus to take my place. I believe Jesus died on the cross to take the punishment for my sin. And right now, Jesus, I invite you to come into my life. I want to make you the king of my life. I'll make you the Lord of my life. I want to live for you forever. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.